One of the uh, few things, and there really probably are just a few things, that Facebook has gotten right over the years since it's been a thing is the addition of the it's complicated status when it comes to relationships. And I don't know if you remember, is this a few years ago that they added that option and like people went crazy for that. A lot of people had a lot of fun with their family and friends by changing their relationship status to uh, it's complicated. Um, but I was thinking about it like this. Uh, the relationships are complicated, aren't they? <laughs> Like, that's just the way it is. And uh, every relationship is complicated. Wife, husband relationship, parent, child, and, and then later years, child, parent relationship is complicated. Employer, employee, teacher, student, patient, caregiver. Those are all difficult, challenging, complicated relationship. Uh, neighbors, maybe you have a complicated relationship with your neighbors or um, maybe even some friends or coworkers that you have to see every day, maybe even, maybe even your family. And um, maybe there's been some issues with family and that's a complicated situation. There's not a single relationship that you or I have in our lives that never faces challenge. Every one of them does. And, and even the relationships that we most cherish can be our most complicated relationship. Are you married? <laughs> Even those relationships that we're supposed to cherish the most can be our most complicated. Or maybe you've got kids or grandkids, and that's a relationship that you cherish, and, and yet there's issues and problems and things that make it complicated. And, and so being married is complicated, um, and being single is complicated. And so basically in our lives, it really comes down to this. You're just choosing, you're complicated. Like which, which one are you gonna choose? They both got issues and, uh, and, and problems. So we're gonna look today uh, in the New Testament to a church in the city of Corinth. It's called Corinthians. Maybe you've heard of it. It's in 1 Corinthians. And the church in Corinth, they struggled with, um, uh, with the relationship kind of stuff. And so we're going to look at uh, a short bit of scripture and how Paul addresses this issue or responds to this question that the Corinthians have about relationships and specifically about the marriage relationship. But I, I want to um, re remember this as we look at it, that the life of faith is not always about getting or having the right answer. So Paul is, has this question from the church and he has to address this question. And what we want typically is a right or wrong answer, right? Tell me what I'm supposed to do, what I'm not supposed to do. That's what I want to hear. But the life of faith is not always about getting or having the right answer because what might be right for one person might not quite be right for the other. And, and the life of faith is just kind of muddy like that sometimes. It's not always clear cut. But really the question is about how we respond to the questions, and so we're going to look not at Paul's answer to their question, because I don't think he really answers the question. We're going to look at how he responds to the question and how he directs them to what is a more appropriate thing. And so we're going to jump right into 1 Corinthians chapter 7 today, and we're going to start with verse um, 25, and apparently it didn't all fit on there, so I'm just going to read it from here, and then we'll catch up over here, okay? So try and get that. I guess I didn't check that. Uh, the, just by the way, 
when we're in our, our new home, this won't be a problem because we'll have time to fix it before Sunday morning. Okay. Now concerning the betrothed, this is verse 25. I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. And I think we can pick up 26. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. So are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn, there we go, as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with, with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Now, does that make perfect sense to you? <laughs> it's confusing, right? You're like, Paul, I thought you were just going to answer the question, but you haven't really. I mean, you've responded to it, but you haven't really answered it. And so we're going to go through this section of scripture kind of piece by piece, and we're going to break it down. And so let's start with verse um, 25. The very first two words uh, Paul says are these, now concerning, now concerning. Um, and we're going to look at those because in ancient writing styles, this phrase, now concerning, really meant, uh, hey, pay attention because now I'm going to address the thing that you asked about. So whenever you see these words now concerning, it typically means the person who's writing is going to answer or address a question that has been asked. And so he's saying, okay, you ask a question, now pay attention because I'm going to try and respond to it. So we know that the church in Corinth has exchanged letters back and forth with the apostle Paul. Um, we know that historically, and even just from reading First and Second Corinthians, you can get the idea that, that Paul is responding to things. Like, they, like he'd received questions from these people. And so as he's writing, he's addressing, he's responding to some of those questions. And so the church in Corinth, they wrote Paul, they had a close relationship with him. And so they shared, uh, hey, here's what's going on in Corinth. Here's what's going on in our, in our church, in our community. Here are the struggles and the successes that we've had. And then here's some questions that we have, Paul. We're trying to figure this life and faith thing out and how they mesh together. And so um, these are the questions we have. And so we're waiting for your response. So remember that the church in Corinth and really every church in the first century was a new church. They, they didn't have history that they could go back to. These people had never been followers of Jesus before. This was all brand new. And so trying to figure out how to do life as a person of faith was a difficult thing because they couldn't just go to mom and dad. They didn't have examples in the world around them that they could look at and then kind of form their own journey uh, from that. So this new church, they were all new to faith and they had lots of questions about how to live and love and look more like Jesus. And so based on the text, Paul um, is going to talk about marriage. And, and specifically, when it says the betrothed, uh, the Greek word here really is the word virgins. And so he's talking about young girls 
who uh, had not been married before. They'd not been with a man, but they were pledged to be married to a man or um, they were entangled in this relationship. And, and remember, this is a different time, right? And so um, moms and, and dads from the female and male side, they came together when their kids were very young still. And they made arrangements and they worked out these marriages. I think this would be a good fit and they had all kinds of reasons why they did that. And so this was just a thing that um, they did. And so um, Paul is addressing this issue. There's a young girl and she is pledged to be married uh, to a guy committed to them by their families. Now, um, this, this betrothal thing, this being pledged to marry, it was, a, it was a thing in not just Jewish culture, but really every culture of, of the day. Moms and dads got involved and they worked these things out in every culture in the first century and for many years um, before that. And, and so um, in, in this century, this time period, women really didn't have uh, rights didn't have any opportunities. They, they couldn't own land. They, they, they couldn't make any decisions. They couldn't engage in business typically without their husband or their father being involved in that. Um, they, they were really, if for all intents and purposes, second or maybe third class citizens. It was a bad situation to be in. It was absolutely a male-dominated world. And so um, the toxic masculinity thing that you sometimes hear about today, that was an actual thing back in the first century uh, and before. That really was going on. And so much of the writing of the apostles in the New Testament as we read what they had to say, it's geared toward men. And it's geared toward men because men were in charge. Men were the ones who were making decisions. Men were the movers and shakers. They're the ones that were in control of basically everything at the time. However, it is clear that the Bible and Christianity did more to raise the perception and purpose and place of women than anything before, and I'd argue anything since. I think the whole uh, women's rights movement um, and this idea of equality began in the New Testament. Because all of a sudden, for centuries and since the beginning of the world, basically at least after the fall, men had been in charge and women really couldn't do anything in virtually every culture of the world until the church was born. Until the apostles and Jesus himself started talking about how men and women were equal in the eyes of God. And all of a sudden you see the position, the purpose, the place of women in society begin to, to rise. And that's why we have Paul and other apostles addressing the issue of women in their letters in the New Testament because this was a brand new thing. This had never happened anywhere before that a woman was given voice in a public setting. So that's why we see things um, like this. So uh, in many cases where we read the word men or the word brothers in the New Testament, it's actually a Greek word that can mean either gender or both genders. It's like um, last Sunday when Easton at the end of church was, he was talking about the new women's Bible study and he kept saying, guys, that's what the Bible does in a lot of places. It uses men or, or, or it uses brothers, but really the Greek word, the original word there can mean any, anybody, either uh, gender. And so sometimes the Bible gets a bad rap for um, primarily addressing men. 
But that's one of the challenges of reading the Bible. Like we constantly have to fight the urge um, to insert our wisdom of the day, our political correctness or our enlightened understanding into the text. And so sometimes we read the Bible and we go, that just doesn't make sense. I don't understand why they would do that. Don't they know? And, and the response is no, <laughs> they didn't know <laughs> at the time. Um, we've grown, we've evolved as a, as a people and all kinds of things are different. And so we have to remember when we read the Bible that it was a different time. It was a difficult time. It, it was maybe a simpler time, but it was also a more deadlier time. And so it was difficult to live in those and it was 100% um, dominated by, maybe that's a stretch. I'll admit, maybe that's it. It was 99%, 99.5% dominated by, uh, dominated by males. And so, look, if, as you're reading the Bible, if you want to get caught up in the um, gender arguments, like, that's fine, but you're going to miss the good stuff that God has for you if you're just getting caught up in that all the time. Just remember, this is a different time. It was different things happening, different things going on. And the church, as it always has, is trying to address society from kind of the outside of society. And yet, our perception of the world around us and how we treat people is absolutely shaped by the world we live in. And so as Christians, what do we say? We're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. And so we got to keep that in mind as we go through Scripture. So the Corinthian church... They were struggling with this issue of marriage, in particular um, men and, and, and women being betrothed and being promised. And, and so the question really is, do we continue to promise our young girls in marriage given the fact that Jesus is coming back? So they, they had a very, like, this is not gonna be very long. Like Jesus is gonna return, the second coming is happening relatively soon. And so given that idea, are, are we supposed to give our daughters in marriage to these um, guys? Um, and, and I think we need to maybe look at this in a little bit kind of wider context. We need to open our eyes a little bit more to what's going on uh, at the day and the time. Because while the question that the Corinthians ask is specific to um, marriage um, and especially these uh, previously arranged marriage marriages, there are some other things to consider. So number one, uh, these arranged marriages were, again, typically arranged years before the girls were old enough to actually marry. And so these new Christians, these people have come to faith in Jesus. They're changing their lives. They're trying to look and, 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 and live and love more like Jesus. And then they have this question, hey, um, we pledged our daughter to be married into this other family over here, but we are now followers of Jesus and they are not. Do we still have to honor that that arrangement. That, that's a serious question, right? As you're trying to live like Jesus and now you're going to be connected and you're giving your daughter to this guy and this other family and they're not followers of Jesus, then how do we do? Do we honor that arrangement or, or don't we? And do we just keep our daughters and not go through with it? Marriage was a big part of life back in those days. It was, it was huge, way bigger than it is today. But it wasn't the only part of life for the Jewish people and for those people in that century. So the questions about marriage are really probably just a part of a much larger question about how these new Christians are supposed to function in the world and with other people who aren't um, 
Christians, a world in which they feel like as believers and followers of Jesus that they don't really belong in anymore. And so how are we as people of faith in the one true God supposed to function in a world of millions of gods and really no faith at all? How are we supposed to make this um, work out? The third thing I think we see is that we're not just talking about sin and eternity here. And a lot of times I think in church, we want to speak of that. We want to talk about, is this going to keep me out of heaven or is it going to send me to hell? Is this a sin or, or not a sin? We want that kind of black and white uh, idea. We think it's just easier to, to function when we know exactly what we're talking about. Um, but this was not an issue of sin or eternity. This was this was just a real desire to follow Jesus in their daily lives, to, to again, to live like and, and, and love like and look like Jesus. And so these early Christians, like they didn't want to sin. They wanted to avoid sin. They wanted to follow Jesus. And so they're asking about marriage, this issue of marriage, but, but, they're, but they really are talking about a lot more than marriage. How do we function in a world that doesn't believe what we believe, doesn't follow, doesn't practice the things that we practice anymore? So um, here's, Paul's, uh, here's Paul's answer, which turns out to be a response. Again, not really an answer. Um, at least it's not the, the answer that I think the early church in Corinth was, was looking for. Again, they probably wanted this kind of black and white thing, and they don't get that from Paul. Paul um, actually uh, says that he has no command. <laughs> Look at that. Um, I have... I know you have this big question and it's a huge thing and it's affecting you and it's weighing on you, but I really have no command from the Lord. And so I'm just going to give you my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. And, and I actually love this response um, by, by Paul. One of my pet peeves among uh, Jesus followers is that we can somehow, we can sometimes have the desire to be uh, super spiritual and to present ourselves to other Christians as like these like super spiritual uh, Christians. And, and so we can begin to talk like everything that we do or that we say, we're actually been like commanded by God to do it or say it. And maybe you know a, a Christian like that who just seems like in their daily conversation, it's like, well, I, I went to the store um, today and I really felt like God was telling me to get 2% milk instead of whole milk. And so that's what I, that's what I got. Um, or, you know, I was driving to work today and I just really felt the Spirit was telling me to do this, take this route instead of that route. And you just get the idea that everything this person does, they're doing because God has told them and given them some divine direction to do things that, that way. And while it, it, while it, maybe it's true, I don't know, but it, it sounds like this super spiritual thing, but here's the problem, people. <laughs> when everything that somebody does, they claim to do because God told them to do it, you can't argue with them because you're arguing with God. You, you can't go, uh, wait a minute, I don't think um, God cares whether you um, have Pepsi or Coke. I don't think God, it doesn't matter. Let, let me rile you up because we got some red shirts here today. 
let me rile you up. God doesn't care who wins the Super Bowl. <laughs> there, <laughs> there, there are lots of Christians this morning who play, prayed for the Chiefs to win. If they are in Kansas, there are equal number of people who prayed for the Eagles to win, which I honestly can't believe. But still, that's, that's the case. Like, I don't, I don't know if you paid attention, um, but, but and, and I, look, let me just confess to you today, I am not an Eagles fan. I've never been an, you don't like the Eagles? They play against the Cowboys. I do not like the Eagles. Uh, <laughs> Jalen Hurts, Jalen Hurts, the quarter, he's the quarterback, right, for the Eagles? Fantastic Christian, fantastic man of, of faith, at least what you see. On TV. And, and so, is God more interested in helping him win or um, helping Holmes win? I, I don't know. Like, God just doesn't care about that. But when we get to the place where everything that we do, we're doing because God told me to do it, nobody else can question that. Nobody else can challenge us on anything because everything I do, I do because God tells me to do. And I just don't like that. I don't, there's another thing I don't um, like. I hear a lot of um, preacher people, and the preacher people, because it might be men or, or women, who, who, who do this themselves. They talk about God told me, or one of the things I really don't like is, is uh, preachers, they begin to pray, and they say, God said, as though they're going to quote from God, but then they don't quote God. They just say this other stuff. And while it might be good stuff that they're saying, it's not necessarily God's stuff that they're saying. And, and the same thing happens. Pretty soon, the people begin to feel like the pastor is always speaking for God. And everything they say is what God would say. And then that, that becomes a problem for me. Because as a a pastor, I'm going to tell you, we're not infallible. We got issues. We got struggles. We got problems just like everybody else. We have the same thoughts. We deal with the same things. Like all kinds of stuff go on. We're just people. And so when a pastor begins to use this kind of terminology, again, it gets to this place where, where, where other people begin to think, well, you can't question. You can't ask. You can't ask because the preacher, no, the preacher speaks to God and God speaks to him. And it's just, I just don't like it. And so um, what I listen for when I listen to other pastors is I listen for that individual to, to say something like, this is my opinion. This is what I think the text is saying, or this is what's going on here, and so here's what I think we can infer from, from this. And, and when it's Scripture and we know exactly what Scripture says, then we can address that and we can deal with that with authority. But everything else, I think, gets, gets muddy really quick when we start talking like we know 100% and, and my opinion is the right. I'd rather respond with humility in those cases than command with authority in those things because I, I might be wrong. I may have read something wrong. I may have a, a wrong understanding. I may have learned something when I was a kid that just isn't right. And, and then, I, then I, like, there's a struggle, right? We can't be right all the time. So it's, it's why in the independent churches, uh, independent Christian churches like we at Real Life are, uh, we say this, in, in essentials, when it comes to faith, in essentials, there should be unity. Like we should all be able to say, yes, it's Jesus and the cross. He died, he rose again, he's coming back. There should be l l unity there. Um, in opinions about faith, 
in life, there ought to be liberality. We ought to be able to say, you, 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 go, you can do that. If, if you feel like it's okay, you can do that. And what might be a sin for you in that area may not be a sin for me. But in all things, whether it's faith or just life, there ought to be love. We ought to have love for one another. We ought to be able to allow to, some liberality in the things that aren't essential things. So we know historically that soon after these churches started popping up all over the Mideastern world, we know that severe persecution also came with that, right? From, from Rome and basically every other nation of the world, there was incredible persecution of the Christians that broke out. And, and so Paul um, tells the people, uh, it's good for a person to remain as he is. This is what the text says. I know you're asking me about marriage and should it betrothed and continue and you keep that and everything. And he says, he says, look, this, my opinion is, as a follower of Jesus, my opinion is that it's good for a person to remain as they are. And so if you're bound to a wife, don't leave her. And if you're free from a wife, you, you don't need to, to seek one. Now, Let's pause again, because remember, please, that we need to not read the text with our enlightened understanding about life, because what's going to happen is, um, what's going to happen is that we're going to go, oh, look, Paul is saying, he's using the term bound to your wife, and, and where, what, what statement came out of this, probably came out of this text? Uh, men would say, my wife is the old ball and chain. You're in trouble because you knew that right off the bat. <laughs> yeah. So Paul says, look, if you're bound to a wife and we're going to go, oh, my goodness, Paul thinks that a wife is a noose around the neck of ball and chain, which, by the way, that idea is this ball and chain just needs to die. We just need to let that go. Nobody needs to say that anymore. And some of you are here going, I've never heard that before in my life. Well, if you were over 20, you would know that uh, statement. So uh, anyway, like um, P Paul is subtly reinforcing the Christian idea that marriage binds both parties to the other. That's, I think, why he says it um, that way. And it's not just the, the woman. It's my opinion that he's using this language on purpose to reinforce the marriage covenant. Because, because marriage was easily, they could easily get out of marriage back in the first century. If you're a man and you were in charge, you could give your wife a certificate of divorce just because she got older and you didn't like to look at her anymore. Whatever the reason, it didn't matter. You could divorce her. And so um, Jesus comes along and he says, look, it's God's plan that man and woman live together and they be together. They be one for the rest of their, um, unless of their lives. And so I think that's why Paul uses the language here um, that he does. So he says, look, if you're married, then, then stay married. And, um, and if you're not married, you don't have to seek being married. Like it's, you don't have to do that just because everybody else is doing it. But if you do marry, here's the part. If you do marry, you have not sinned. And if, and if a betrothed woman who's not in control, if she 
has to be married. She has not sinned. And, and so um, Paul is like approaching this from both sides. He's like, look, if, you have, if you're a man and you have the power to choose whether you get married or, or not, and you choose to be married as a Christian, then cool, great, it's good, good for you. It's fine, you can do that. Um, and if you're a woman and you have zero power to get out of the marriage, and so you are contractually obligated to get married, you haven't sinned either. It basically it's like, the answer to your question is, eh, either, one, both, doesn't matter, whichever uh, one works for you. And, and so um, this, is like, this is as close to a straight up answer as we get from Paul. If you do, you're good. If you don't, you're good too, it uh, doesn't matter. Um, and so I believe that there were people in the early church at, at this point in Corinth who were so intent on being right as, as followers of Jesus, like today we might call them religious people. They were so intent on being religious and following the letter of, of the law or, or whatever, um, that they forgot to just be real, that we function in the real world and we have to figure our way through all of this stuff. And so Paul wants the church in Corinth and the people to understand that faith is not about being right. It, it's about relationships. And you don't have to validate their preference in order to value their existence. So they get married or they don't get married, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't really affect you. You don't have to validate um, their preference to value their existence. And, and look, um, Christians are often given a hard time um, claiming that we're trying to force our beliefs about maybe gender norms or same-sex relationships or just how you live your life in general and you function in your life. And, and sometimes we get a bad rap for, for good reason, right? Because all Christians and all churches, for, by many people who are not followers of Jesus, we're all lumped together in the same thing, right? So, so we have on one side Westboro Baptist Church, unfortunately, um, and then on the other side we have the universalist churches who are like, whatever you believe, what God, animal, thing, plant, whatever, we're all going to the same place and everybody's going to heaven and so don't worry about it, everybody's gonna, gonna get there. Because there's a huge spectrum of places called churches and Christians and everybody kind of gets lumped together uh, and so sometimes it's difficult to kind of figure out what exactly a person of faith believes. Um, but we absolutely can value a person's existence without validating their preferences. And I would argue that Jesus did that all the time. And so those in the church, in the church in Corinth, that claimed that marriage had become evil in light of Jesus' return, um, they were to bear with those who wanted to get married. And this issue was not a choice between salvation and Satan. Because we want to we sometimes break those things. Like if you don't choose this, um, that's Satan. If you choose this, that's sal salvation. And that's um, really not uh, true. It, it was just a choice. And each individual was free to make their own choice. And so this is how um, Paul wraps up. He says, look, Christians, the text is up here. We'll break it down. Christians who, married, who get married are commanded by God to serve their spouse, husband or wife, with love and respect. And that means that you have to consider and sometimes cater to the needs of your spouse, even if you'd rather be doing something else. 
And so your video games or your vehicle or your to-do list or your, the laundry or even your children don't excuse you from serving and sacrificing for your spouse. So it's difficult to be married. This is what Paul is saying. It's difficult to be married because it can take away from your ability to just serve God in whatever way he might lead you because once you have a family, your family becomes your mission field. You are bound to them. I used to say it this way when I started because my dad was a a pastor for 35 years and I grew up in a pastor's home and and I knew what it was like to be uh, in in a family, like a single parent family because dad was gone all the time. And I remember going to my first interview, uh, the first church that I had applied to, to be the pastor of, and they asked me, you know, what's my philosophy? Or what? I'm like, I don't know, I was 27 years old, I know nothing. Uh, and, uh, and so I, I just remember telling them, I, I said, look, here's my idea. If, if I come to pastor this church and, and I lead every person in town to faith, every person becomes a Christian, but my kids are not Christians because of the way I live, because I didn't, um, I, I wasn't an example to them because I was out saving everybody else, then I will feel like a failure as a follower of Jesus and as a pastor. And so I believe that my, my kids, my wife, my family is my first mission. Um, and then the church and, and, and the community come after that. Um, And so once you're married, your family becomes that mission field. And so um, Paul encourages the married and the unmarried alike in the last part of this um, section. He says, um, if you have a spouse, live like you don't. (laughs) That could get a lot of people in trouble really quick. (laughs) But we're going to talk about it. Just a second, we're going to wrap that up. (laughs) If you have a spouse, live like you don't. If you're mourning, live like you aren't. If you're sad about something, live like you aren't. If you have reason to rejoice, act like you don't. We're like, this doesn't make any sense. What is he saying? If you have stuff, he says, act like you don't have stuff. And, and then he says, deal with the world as though you don't have to deal with the world. And we end up with this. What? What did you, what was that, Paul? That made no sense at all. How are we supposed to do that? We're married and we know we're supposed to stay married and serve our spouse and love our spouse. And you just said to act like you don't have a spouse. This doesn't make any sense at all. So look, um, Paul is not saying that if you're married, act like you're divorced or never married. That's obviously not what he's saying because Paul in other places in 1st to 2nd Corinthians and in Ephesians and in other passages in the New Testament, he spends considerable time explaining the marriage relationship and how a marriage between a husband and wife, it models the relationship between Jesus and his church and Jesus will never divorce or leave his bride, the church. And so that is our um, example. So what Paul is saying for the person of faith is that our lives and our relationships should be different from the world because we value different things. The, the world is, is, is passing away. And so the things that the world values, those things are passing away. We shouldn't get so caught up in the things of the world because the things of the world aren't gonna be around forever. And so if you're married, your marriage shouldn't look like every other marriage um, of people who are outside of, of faith. Your marriage is the picture of something much bigger than just the two of you and how you get along.
Your spouse is your best option to demonstrate the love of Jesus and practice serving. And that's the goal here. Paul's like, look, this don't, don't live like marriage in the rest of the world, but value that relationship because it's the first place you're going to learn to serve and to love when maybe you don't feel like it. He says, if you're mourning the things of this world, if you're mourning that the stock market crashed or all that money you put into um, Bitcoin is going down uh, or whatever, if, if you're mourning the things of this world, stop because the world isn't your home. It, it's, this is your temporary habitat. It's, it's not your home. And so what happens in the things of the world that, that give us purpose and whatever, that, that doesn't matter as much. And, and if you have a worldly reason to rejoice, stop. Because there are far greater reasons to rejoice than your bank account or your Instagram following. I think here's what Paul is trying to say. Just because you live in the world, you don't have to live like the rest of the world. And really, you shouldn't as a follower of Jesus. And so one day, all of this is going to change. And what seemed really important here is going to be insignificant in heaven. And, and, and what, what seemed insignificant here on earth is going to be really, really important when we get to Jesus. And so Paul responds to the question about marriage, but he really doesn't answer it. What he does say is more like this. Be you being Jesus. Be you being Jesus. And, and be you being Jesus so that others who know you might come to know him. Let's pray. God, thanks for loving us and for everything that you have done and give to us. Thank you for this picture that you have given us of, of marriage um, in Jesus and the church and in your love for us, this love that never ends. You always serve, you always respect, you always are giving to us. And you've given us that example in marriage to live out. But also, Father, if we choose to be single, that's okay. And we can love and serve you by loving and serving others, um, sometimes even better than those who are married. And so God, we just thank you for accepting us, for giving us freedom in these issues, for, for not making every single thing black and white, but giving us opportunity to express ourselves and love you and others at the same time. And so Father, for those of us who are married, ask your blessing on that. Would, would we be good examples of Jesus to our spouse? And for those of us here who aren't married, God, would we be content in, in that? And, and if marriage is an option, it comes along great. And if it doesn't, great. Um, help us just to serve and to love you and others no matter what the situation, because this world is not our home. So there's something far greater and much better that we're looking for. So God, lead us to that place and help us to live out our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.